0: You're listening to the New Song Students Podcast. I'm Jackson, and I'm the student pastor at New Song Church, located in Oklahoma City. We hope this message builds your faith and helps you to know God better in a greater way today. Enjoy the message. Now, who's ready for the word tonight? Who's ready to jump into the word? Okay, we are continuing. In week two of a series we started last week called Hot Takes. Look to your neighbor and say, Hot Takes. And if you are going to be taking some good notes with me tonight, if you're going to be leaning into this message, um, then you can start turning over to two passages of scripture that we're going to start on. We're going to be starting in Leviticus chapter 27, Old Testament, and Acts chapter 2. And in this series, we are learning about not only how, how to address a hot take, but we're going to be addressing specific hot takes, some controversial topics that Happen or that are discussed or debated in the faith about Christianity. And last Wednesday, we spent some time laying the framework, giving us a foundation for the rest of this series um, about how to wrestle with a hot take, how to take a hot take, and you don't know the answer to this, you don't know where to stand on this, and how to take it, and to decide where you need to stand on this particular issue. And I want to really quickly review what we talked about last week, not just for the people who that weren't there but for all of us, to remind all of us how we filter a hot take down to an answer because we're gonna be doing that exact same process tonight and next week and the last week of the series. Sound good? Yeah. Okay, so before we just review, let's just define what a hot take is again. A hot take is a statement that is provocative enough. Somebody say, ooh. A statement that is provocative enough that people can't help but weigh in their thoughts. So we used this picture, this analogy of you and your friends at the lunch table. Now, I guess that doesn't work anymore because it's summer. But let's just pretend you and your buddies are hanging out and somebody says this phrase, hot take. And then the, the, the sentence that follows is something that is so heated, so controversial that you can't help but say something about it. For example... If I were to be up here and I were to say, and I know this is gonna get some people riled up tonight, but if I was gonna say hot take, In-N-Out is the best burger of all time. Instantly, instantly, you're gonna have some people who think I'm ridiculous, and some people who are gonna be like, amen, brother, praise God, let's go. That is, this is what a hot take is. A hot take, a hot take by its very nature, when you say it, it's going to elicit some sort of response, a conversation, a debate, possibly an argument, possibly some division, and the more you grow in your faith, the more you grow in your walk with the Lord and the knowledge of the word, and the more you just grow with Christ, I'm telling you, the more you're going to realize that people, and I'm talking about Christians who love God, good people like you and me, have a lot of different ways of interpreting God. There's a lot of different ways of how to see God, how to interpret his word. And because of that, what we see in the church is with these hot, t- hot takes, hot topics, there's division in the church. But for you and me, as mature Christians, does anybody wanna be a mature believer in Christ? Anybody wanna stay a baby Christian for their entire life? I hope you don't. If you wanna be a mature believer in Christ, then we've gotta learn how to navigate through some of these tensions. We've gotta learn how to navigate through some of the emotion That is in these hot takes and how to strip all of that away and just take it to the word of God and say, God, where do I need to stand on this issue? And so last week, if you were taking good notes, if you were leaning with with me, leaning in with me, then you you probably remember that I gave you three steps or I talked about how this is like three filters that if I give you a hot take and it's a juicy hot take and you don't know what the answer is to this Christian hot take. I gave you three filters, starting from the most important to the least important. And when you take that hot take and you filter it through those three steps, you will hopefully land on a stance. Pop quiz, what was the first filter? The word of God, that's right, God's word, period. If you're a Christian, your first response should always be this. What does God's word say? What does God's word say about this? Because God's word is absolute truth, but it's also absolutely clear. Now we talked about this, just because God's word is absolute truth and absolutely clear, does that mean God's word is like a Google search engine for us? We can't just like throw any hot take and God's word is just gonna be a pfft and just spit out like your perfect answer. That would be amazing, but it doesn't do that. But God's word is clear. And so we go to the word first and we filter that hot take through the word. But what happens if you do that and you still don't have the black and white answer you're looking for, what's the second filter? The church. the church, that's right. So the question we need to ask is, okay, what does the church believe about this? What do the majority of Christians say about this hot take? And for you and I, what we learned last week is that if we're smart, if we're mature, what we wanna do is say, if, if like 90% of Christians believe this about this hot take, It's wise for me to lean on what they believe. But sometimes we go to the church and there are different beliefs about something. Then we need to go through the last filter. Does anybody remember what the last and third filter is? The spirit. Man, y'all were taking some good notes last week. Pat yourself on the back. Let's go. The spirit. And that question is this. We ask the Holy Spirit, where are you leading me with this hot take? This is where we talked about something called personal conviction. Do you remember this? Personal conviction, where is the Holy Spirit leading you? Now, it's important to remember that we don't start at personal conviction, right? Like, for instance, if I'm at the store and I'm hungry, I can't tell you, well, man, I'm hungry, and I just felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me to, like, steal this bag of chips because I'm hungry, and God's a good Father, and He doesn't want me to be hungry. Like, no, (laughs) That's not how it works. That's not how personal conviction works. I can't go past the word and past the church and stand on personal conviction, but I can do that if the word and the church have not given me the exact answer I need. That's where we lean on personal conviction. Is that good, amen? That's good stuff. Okay, so the word, the church, the spirit, and tonight what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be taking our hot take tonight and we're gonna be running it through those three filters and we're gonna see where we land on this issue. Tonight we're talking about the tithe. Look at your neighbors say the tithe. The tithe. If you don't know what that is, we're gonna answer it tonight. Trust me, I'm not gonna leave you hanging. But if you're taking notes, you can write at the top of your notes. Hot take, tithing. Do I need to give it? Do I need to give it? So to kick off this message, we're gonna look at two passages of scripture. The first is in Leviticus. We're going old school, we're going law. Leviticus chapter 27, I I did have a chunky verse, but I'm just gonna read the first verse. You're welcome. You can just take a deep breath. We're not gonna read a huge chunk of Leviticus. But Leviticus 27, verse 30 says this. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees is the Lord's. Somebody say the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So this was a command given by God for the children of God to tithe, to give up and to separate and to set apart their land, their crops, their animals to God. It was holy. You remember that? You got that? Okay, let's fast forward all the way to the New Testament early church, Acts chapter two, and let's see what this looks like for them. Acts chapter two, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Amen, let's go. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. Look at this, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So pause. I want you to see. That the early church, they are so fired up about God, they are so fired up about the things of the Spirit, that they are literally selling their homes, their land, their possessions to the church for the church to help people. That's pretty wild, right? Would you say that's boldness right there? That's pretty bold faith right there. Let's continue. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. All right, let's jump into this juicy hot take of the tithe. But before we do, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for tonight. And I thank you, Lord, that the earth is the fullness of the Lord, that everything on earth, everything that we have been given, the roof over our heads, the clothes on our backs, the food on our table, the money in our bank accounts, God, it is not ours. At the end of the day, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything we have has been given by a generous Father. And God, you're so generous that you didn't just stop at take care of our physical needs. You gave us Jesus. You gave us the ultimate gift, and we thank you for that. And God, I pray that you would help us, all of us tonight as believers who trust you and are your children. I pray that you would give us eyes to see our money, and eyes to see our stuff and our possessions the way you would have us see those things. God, if you ask for them, help us to have the boldness to lay anything down. Give us boldness tonight. Speak to every heart in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Okay, before we get into the nitty-gritty, I want to look at a story in Mark chapter 10. So if you got a Bible which I don't know if there's any physical Bibles in the house tonight. Are there any physical Bibles? Oh, okay, let's go. Okay, Mark chapter 10. I wanna look at a story where Jesus, he encounters a man and he, he does not, he's nice to this man, but Jesus is kind of messing with this dude and he is poking at this dude's heart. He sees a sensitive area in this person's heart and Jesus just kind of starts poking at it a little bit. And I wanna look at this. It's a famous passage of scripture. If you've been here at New Song Students for a while, you know it. I've probably taught it before. It's the rich young ruler. You guys familiar with this story? I wanna use this story to set up kind of a framework for the topic because I recognize that this is a tender topic. I'm talking about your stuff tonight. I'm talking about your money, your stuff. And so let's look at this. Let's look at what the rich young ruler has to say. It says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, And as he was setting out on this journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Jesus, I've been doing that my whole life. Look at this. Teacher, all those things I've kept from my youth. So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, hey, can you tell me if I'm doing the right stuff to inherit eternal life? Can you affirm if I'm running in the right direction? Jesus tells him, you need to obey God's word. You need to obey the commandments. And this rich young ruler responds to Jesus and says, bro, I got that in the bag. I've been been obeying your commandments for quite some time now since children's ministry. I've been honoring my father and my mother. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I want you to see that Jesus is saying this with a heart of love. He said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions okay now this is an interesting story because it kind of breaks our like sweet boyfriend box that we put jesus in like jesus is just like a sweet boyfriend to you and he'll love you wherever you're at and he he will never tell you to do anything hard and this kind of this story kind of breaks this mold of jesus for us because in this story we see jesus telling this man to do something extremely difficult. And this man leaves Jesus because of it. And Jesus doesn't go chasing after this guy. He says, hey, you lack one thing, sell all of your possessions. Now, what Jesus said to this man can seem a little unloving. It can seem a little harsh. But what I want you to see tonight is that what Jesus is doing is simply revealing the, the condition in this man's heart. He's simply revealing the condition in his man's heart. In order to do this, he pokes at a sensitive area, a a sensitive spot in the rich young ruler's heart. It's kind of like if you were to go to the doctor. Have you ever been to a doctor's appointment before? And they poked and prodded you. Has that ever happened to you before? You got a shot, you got, they were like, hey, does this hurt, does this hurt? My wife, Haley, if you don't know, she's in physical therapy school. And so she loves when I come home and I tell her that something on my body hurts. Why? Because she wants to assess the injury. So just a forewarning for all of you, don't ever tell my wife that something hurts because you know what she's gonna do? She's gonna grab you, she's gonna pull you aside, and she's gonna start messing with you and poking at you and prodding you. And like, So if you say, hey, Haley, my shoulder hurts. What she's gonna do is she's gonna say, okay, lift your shoulder up like this. Does this hurt? No? Okay. And she's gonna keep trying to hurt you. She's gonna say, okay, lift it this way. Does that hurt? No? Okay. How about this? What if I just push on it really, really hard? And she's gonna poke and she's gonna prod. Now, when she's doing this, when my wife is poking and prodding at my shoulder because it hurts, or when a doctor is assessing something that you're worried about, is the doctor trying to hurt you? You can answer that question. Is the doctor trying to hurt you? No, that's ridiculous. The doctor's not trying to hurt you. They're putting your body through a test. She's testing my body. They're testing you, assessing you, putting your body through different things to reveal what's happening that we can't see underneath the surface. They're trying to reveal the condition of what's actually there. And in order to do that, they have to poke at what's sensitive they have to touch at what is sensitive. And what would also be super unloving and unethical for a doctor is if they poked and they prodded at me and they found out the issue and then didn't tell me that there was actually an issue, right? That would be extremely bad if the doctor found out you had cancer, cancer, not cancel, and they saw that you had cancer and then they said, hey, you're good, man. You're healthy. Pack it up. You're doing great. That would be extremely bad because the doctor needs to tell you the truth. What's been revealed needs to be exposed. And this is exactly what we see doing with this rich young ruler. I, am, I imagine Jesus as like stepping into this role of the great physician. And he is about to do a heart analysis of this rich young ruler's heart. And so what happens? Well, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus with a question, with a concern. He wants to know, hey, am I heading in the right direction of eternal life. And so Dr. Jesus pulls out his notepad and he's like, "All right, let's let's run your heart through some tests." And Dr. Jesus says, "Are you obeying the commandments? Are you loving your father and mother? Are you obeying the commandments of the Lord?" And this rich young ruler says, "Yeah, dude, of course. I've been doing that my whole life." And so Jesus says, "All right. Check, that's a negative test. Your heart's looking good so far. But what about this test? What about this test? What if I asked you to give everything away?" Rich young ruler, what if I asked you to give away your possessions? And in this moment, the rich young ruler, he like, oh, that hurts a little bit. So much to the point that he leaves Jesus's doctor office and Jesus looks at his notepad and he goes, okay, that's a positive test right there. There's something going on right there. When Jesus asks this man to give everything away, he's not doing so to be mean to this rich young ruler. He's not trying to intentionally hurt this rich young ruler, Jesus is acting as a doctor in this moment who knows there's something deeper happening underneath the surface of all of this outward discipleship. And in order to reveal what's actually going on beneath the surface of doing all the right stuff, he's going to poke at something that means a lot to this rich young ruler, and that was his stuff. And so Jesus poked at it, And when he did, there was two things that were revealed that I think we can learn from this story before we we even get into this hot take. The first thing is this. Jesus reveals a bare minimum discipleship. In this rich young ruler, we see the heart of a bare minimum discipleship. It's almost like when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he's asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, where's the line that I need to cross? in order to get to eternal life. Because I'm willing to do the line, but I don't really wanna do more than that. So can you just tell me exactly where the line is so I can do that? And man, I see this same mentality in the church sometimes. Like I see people just wanting us as pastors to just give you all the answers. Can you just tell me, Pastor Jackson, what I need to do in order to feel good and be blessed and know that I'm going to heaven? And we just want the answers. We want all the boxes to be checked. and We want the easiest route to eternal life. Like, okay, I checked my quiet time list today. I got that. I read my Bible. I prayed today before bed. I didn't make fun of that person with my friends, even though I really wanted to. Check, I'm a good Christian. We check this box, but this is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be in relationship with somebody. Because if I'm looking at a relationship that I'm in with a person and I'm thinking, What's the bare minimum I need to do in order for us to be good? Have I missed the mark of of a relationship? I've, I've had a misunderstanding. If I look at my wife, Haley, and I say, Haley, can you just tell me the bare minimum that I need to do in order for our marriage to be good? Then I have a misunderstanding of what marriage actually is, right? In the same way with our walk with the Lord. If we're looking at our walk with the Lord and we're asking the questions, man, where's the line? what's the least I need to do in order to be good with God, we have missed the, the whole point of what this relationship is all about. David Guzik says this, Jesus was filled with loving compassion for this man because his life was so empty. He had climbed the top of the ladder of success only to find that his ladder leaned against the wrong building. See, when Jesus asked this man to surrender everything that he had and he didn't want to give it, what we see is that he was living out of a bare minimum discipleship walk with the Lord. All he was willing to do was obey the commandments, have this outward display of righteousness. But the second Jesus asked him to lay something down that was hard for him, he left. And that wasn't Jesus being mean, that was Jesus revealing in this man's heart. He did not have what, the relationship with God that he thought. He had entered into a bare minimum discipleship. And I see this mentality, especially when it comes to things like the tithe. I see people, Christians actually, who almost it's like they use the grace of God as an excuse to not have to give, <laughs> to not have to be generous. And we, th- we hear people say things like, you don't need to give your money away. You don't need to do all of that stuff because like we live under grace and there's grace for you. And yes and amen, praise God, we do live under the law of grace. There is no amount of money, there's no amount of works, there's no amount of stuff that you could give to God that will ever let you enter into heaven. It'll never change your relationship with God. But shouldn't our response to a God who gave everything for us be to be able to give whatever he asks? I'm going to say that again because that was good. You didn't get that. Shouldn't our response be to a God who gave everything up for us be to give him whatever he asks? It should be. That's what grace actually is. And New Song students, what what I'm trying to get you to see is that Jesus will ask you to do more than the bare minimum in this relationship that you have with him. This is a fundamental part of being in relationship with Jesus. There's gonna be times in your walk with Jesus, and I'm not even talking about your money, I'm just talking about in your walk with Jesus, there's gonna be times where he asks you to do something that is past your comfort zone. It's past the bare minimum of what you are willing to give up, and the cost might seem too high in those moments. And it's not wrong to feel like that cost is too high. But if I can't lay that thing down, it reveals something in my heart. It reveals either I have bought into a bare minimum minimum discipleship, or I have bought into a relationship with Christ where I'm willing to do whatever he asks in order to follow him. So Jesus pokes at this man's heart. He sees that there's a sensitive area here, and as a good, loving doctor and father, he pokes at it to reveal something. The second thing that he reveals is this, and this is where I wanna get into our topic tonight. Jesus reveals the tension of money. Somebody say money. The tension of money. Now, Jesus isn't just asking the rich young ruler to do a hard thing. Like, it's not just a hard thing that he's asking him to do. Jesus is talking about something that is way more powerful to our heart than any of us are willing to give credit. Jesus is poking at something that has a huge role in our hearts, whether we like it or not. Mark 10, verse 24 says this, look at this. Jesus says, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. Now we read that, I've read that before and I've thought, well, Jesus, I'm not rich, so I'm good. I'm not a rich person. I didn't come from a wealthy family. But look at what David Guzik says about this. We often excuse ourselves from what Jesus said here because we don't consider ourselves rich. Yet compared to this rich young ruler, each one of us experiences more luxuries and comfort than he ever did. So all of us in this room, especially if we're talking about in the context of other countries, all of us are rich. We are wealthy, we are blessed. And look at this, riches, presents a difficulty because they tend to make us satisfied with this life instead of longing for the age to come. It is true that riches must often be acquired at the expense of acquiring God. Now, I've said it before. I've preached this story before of the rich young ruler, and I've said it before, and it bears repeating. This story is not Jesus telling us that money is evil. And this story is not telling us that in order to follow Jesus and to truly love him, you have to be homeless. Like I'm not telling you that you need to, tonight, go home and sell all of your things or you're not going to heaven. That is not what I'm saying. And that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what this story is about. Because the reality is, Jesus didn't need this man's stuff. He doesn't need your stuff. But what he needed and what he wanted was this man's heart. And in order to get to this man's heart, he had to go through his stuff. In order to get to the heart, he had to go through the stuff. And so Jesus pokes at his heart and Jesus makes it clear even further in his most famous message on the Sermon on the Mount. He says this thing about the power of money on our heart. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it kind of sounds harsh, but according to Jesus, the reality that this man was not able to surrender his treasure proves that his heart was actually not for God. That sounds harsh. Please hear the love in my heart when I'm saying this. The fact that he couldn't lay his treasure down proves that his heart wasn't in the direction of God. Even though this dude had an outward display of righteousness, he was following all of the commandments since he was young. His inability to lay down his treasure proved that his heart did not actually love God as much as he thought. Now, what am I saying? I'm not saying that um, that if you don't give your treasures away, that you're not saved, that that you don't love God at all. What I'm saying is this just reveals the condition of where our heart is at. And so when you're signing up to follow Jesus When you're saying yes to Jesus, I think so many Christians, they don't realize exactly what they're signing up for. Like when you sign up to be a disciple, to to follow Jesus, to know God and to be saved, that means being willing to give up and to lay down whatever he asks for. If he asks you to move, if he asks you to go to the college you didn't wanna go to, if he asks you to take that job that you didn't wanna take, if he asks you to forgive somebody you don't wanna forgive, Discipleship is saying yes to those things, right? This is what discipleship is. But I also wanna be honest with you about what God's word says about your money, about your stuff, about the role that it plays in your life. God's word doesn't say that you can't have money. It doesn't say that you can't have nice things or you can't have stuff. It just says that when God asks you to lay it down, you can trust him and do that. That's what it says. So regardless of wherever you stand on this hot take, which we're about to get to, regardless of wherever you stand, I think we can all agree that discipleship is about doing more than the bare minimum required. That's what discipleship is about. And I think we can all agree, according to Jesus's mouth, not mine, that our money and our possessions, they play a bigger role in our heart than we, can, than we give credit. So are we all on the same page as far as that goes? Okay, so with that being said, I wanna enter into our hot take of tithing. I want to, and I, As we enter in, I wanna be as clear as possi- possible with you about my stance, where I stand on this, what I believe, because I don't want to, for a second, I don't want you to think that I would ever ask you to do something that I'm not practicing, that I'm not walking out and doing faithfully. So let me, know, let me just let you know from the get-go where I stand. And right now, I'm gonna practice something that Pastor Tondorai does. I love this, so I'm stealing this from him. I'm entering into my opinion box. I love what Tondorai, if you've ever seen him preach before, you'll hear him, you'll hear him do this. He says, I'm entering into my opinion box, so you can't hate me right now. You can't throw tomatoes at me. This is my opinion box. You can take it or leave it. But this is what I believe. You ready? I believe that regular, reoccurring, sacrificial giving is a part of the Christian walk. This is what I believe. I believe that regular, reoccurring, sacrificial giving of your money is a part of your Christian walk. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of whatever season of life you're in, I believe that this is a part of your walk as a believer. Now, when I was in high school, when I was your age, I was going to Gateway Church and I had gotten my first couple jobs. So this is the first time I'm ever making my own money. And at Gateway Church, our church did a series on tithing and generosity called The Blessed Life by Robert Morris. And this was the first time I had ever heard of this thing called the tithe. I had never heard about it. My parents never told me about it, but I heard this series And I left this series feeling like the Lord was leading me to take this step of faith, to start tithing. And so that that series was over 12 and a half years ago in my life. So for the last 12 and a half years, I'm just letting you know not to boast, not to look holier than thou, but I have tithed on every single paycheck that I've ever made. I've given 10% or more of every single paycheck I've made to the house of God. Now, I don't say that for you to be like, whoa, Pastor Jackson is super holy. Not at all. I say this from a place of testimony, because I have given when it wasn't easy. I have given when it was easy. There have been different seasons of my life where that tithe was not easy to give. There have been times when I'm given that tithe, and and it feels pretty easy for me to give, so I've given in season and out of season. And what I'm telling you tonight is over 12 years of doing this, I've seen the faithfulness of God on my life. I've seen God take care of me and my family. And what I'm not telling you is that I'm rich and I'm making bank. And if you tithe, you're gonna get every car that you ever want. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is I have seen the favor of God on my life. There's been times where I shouldn't have made it, where that bill shouldn't have been paid, where I had a college debt that should not have been paid, but it was taken care of. And I believe it's because of sacrifice and honoring the Lord in finances. And so I wanna get into this topic tonight. So let's hit this hot take. Y'all ready? Tithing. Do I need to tithe as a Christian? Well, before we answer that, well, let's answer the question, what is the tithe? What in the world is the tithe? Well, if you're taking notes, write this down. It's 10%. Somebody say, it's 10%. That word tithe simply means 10th. It's a percentage of money. Or in biblical times, it wasn't just money. It was a percentage of like your cows and your sheep and your goats and your grapes. It was a percentage of your crops and your stuff that was set aside for God. So let's just, as an example, let's just pretend you're at your first job. You get a paycheck. It's $100 to tithe that would mean to take what? $10 out of that paycheck, and you set it aside. It's not for you. It's not for that thing you're saving up for. You set it aside for the Lord. And we'll get to that in a second. Now, the tithe, I want you to know, is a biblical principle that is woven all throughout scripture. It's in the Old Testament. It shows up in the New Testament. But most people are familiar with the tithe as being a commandment. That God gave in Leviticus chapter 27. Now, again, we already read that passage. I'm not gonna bore you with going through it. But in Leviticus 27, God commanded somebody say, commanded. God commanded his people to give a tithe, to give 10% of what they made of their possessions to the Lord. But it wasn't just any 10%, it was, point number two, first fruits. Somebody say, first fruits. First fruits. So the tithe isn't just 10%, it's first fruits. This means it's not just a random 10% in that possession or in that money from the total, it's the first 10%. It's the best of what you have. And one of the best ways I think we can look at this is with the story of Cain and Abel. Are you guys familiar with this story? Now, this is way before the tithe ever was instituted, but there's this weird story where Cain and Abel both bring an offering to God. And this is like the first story in the Bible where God seems like he's kind of mean, but he's not mean. And we're gonna get to that in just a second because Cain and Abel both bring an offering to God. But if you know the story, God only accepts one of those offerings. He only accepts Abel. So let's look at this and try and figure out why he did that. Genesis chapter four, verse two, it says, "'Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, "'but Cain was a tiller of the ground.'" And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering. Somebody say, an offering. An offering offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, but look, it was the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. Okay. Why in the world is God only accepting one offering versus the other? They're both, I'm sure they were both good offerings. Well, look at even how this verse is worded. It says, for Cain, it happened in the process of time. It just kind of came to pass. When it was convenient for Cain, it happened, he gave an offering. It wasn't the best. It wasn't the first. It was an offering. But then Abel shows up, and Abel gives the firstborn and their fat. And the fat was juicy. That was the good stuff. That was the stuff you wanted to keep for yourself. But Abel gave the firstfruits and the fat. Now, Abel brings the best to God. And so why why does God accept Abel's but not Cain's? What's the big idea here? It seems like God is being kind of unfair in this moment. But what I want to show you is that this is actually beautiful Foreshadowing of how you and I are supposed to relate to God today because Cain's offering, listen to me, was not made in faith. It wasn't made in faith. Cain's offering wasn't his first and it wasn't his best. It was made out of obligation and convenience. He made it when he wanted to make it and he gave what he wanted to give God. But Abel shows up and he it changes everything, but he gives God his first and his best. And what I want you to see is that Abel gave in faith. How do I know this? Well, Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Abel offered uh, to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gift. So Cain's offering was made out of a dead religion. He gave what he thought God wanted, which was and offering, and I bet you go down the street today, you ask any random person, any 10 people, hey, how do you think you get to heaven? You know what you're gonna hear a majority of? Be good. If you be good, you will get get to heaven. God wants you to be good. God accepts good people into heaven. I bet you that's the majority of the response you'll get, but good offerings don't get you to the Father. Faith does. Good offerings don't get you to the Father. Faith does. So God God accepts Abel's offering because it's made by faith. He doesn't accept Cain's offering because it was just something that was good. It wasn't made out of faith. And for us today, man, it doesn't matter how good you are. You don't get to heaven unless you put your faith in Christ, right? We don't relate to God with our good works and our good offerings. We relate to him when we give in faith, when we are living in faith. So practically... What does this look like today to give a first fruit offering for us? Well, it looks different than for Cain and Abel. Like if you were to bring like a really bloody fattened goat to church, that would be really weird and everybody would start calling New Song a cult. So please don't do that. Don't do that. But what does a first fruits offering look like for me, Jackson? What does it look like? It looks like this. I don't wait until my bills are paid to tithe. It looks like this. I don't wait until I've finally saved up for that thing that I want. And then if there's 10% left over, I give it. No, no, no. First fruits is I give it before I know things will be taken care of. This is faith. It's a faith offering. It's a faith move. Now for you as New Song students, this may look different for you because you in this room tonight, you probably don't have bills to pay, but maybe you have something that you want and you're saving up for it, maybe it's a new pair of shoes, maybe it's your first car, maybe, I don't know what you're saving up for, maybe you're trying to take some, some sweet girl on a date, and so you want to save up some money. Come on, where are the fellows at? Okay, you're saving up for something. What does first fruits look like for you today? Well, it looks like giving to the Lord, even if that means that thing that you want is going to take longer for you to get. It's giving your best and it's giving your first. This is what the tithe biblically means. It's 10% and it's first fruits. But have you ever wondered, why does God need my money? Come on, be honest, have you ever thought that before? Like, why, why tithe? Why does God need my money? Isn't he God? Well, let's answer that really quickly. What was the tithe for? Well, for starters, God definitely doesn't need your money. He's God. Like you giving, you giving your $10 from your Chick-fil-A paycheck, it's not helping God out, okay? It's not helping God out. So the tithe, it is for God, but it's not for God. So practically, what does the tithe for? It's for two things, one a practical reason, and one is a spiritual reason. The first is this. The tithe was for supporting Levitical priests in the Old Testament, and today, for the New Testament, Our generosity is for supporting the local church. So in the Old Testament, the Levites or the tribe of Levi, they were the ones who ran all of temple worship. And the tribe of Levi, they didn't have crops. They didn't have their own possessions. They didn't have their own animals. So they had to be supported from in order to do their work in the ministry. And so God, the reason why he instituted the tithe in the Old Testament was so that the tribe of Levi could survive. It was so that it could support them in the work of the ministry. But as we fast forward into the New Testament, we see plenty and plenty of scriptures that let us know that when you and I give to the church, we are helping the body of Christ continue to move. When you and I give today, you are supporting pastors who feed you. You're supporting ministries that feed your community. And we're called to do this as believers. So on a practical level, The tithe is important because it keeps ministry going, but what's the spiritual level of this? What's the deeper meaning behind the tithe? Well, the tithe, number two, is this. It's a physical sacrifice for a spiritual reality. So let's go back to the words of Jesus for a second. Matthew 6, 21, what does he say? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think we can all agree here in this moment that Jesus is being pretty clear. Would you agree? Like this isn't like a parable of Jesus where you're kind of like, what Jesus? I don't know what you mean by that. This one's pretty clear. Jesus is saying where your treasure is, there is your heart as well. This is Jesus being black and white. He's telling us that the location of your heart is where you're putting your money and your stuff. So if I say I love Jesus, if I say that I love his church, but I never give, and I never set aside what's been given to me, I need to ask myself an honest question. Do I really love God like I say I do? Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you don't tithe, if you don't give to the church, that you are not saved. This is not about salvation. This is not about earning anything from God. It's not like if you tithe, God's gonna love you more. That's not what I'm talking about tonight. All I'm saying is, just like Jesus was acting as a doctor and pointing at sensitive points in this, guy, in this guy's heart, if I talk to you and I say, hey, you, new song student in the room, with you feel like you don't have that much money in, in your bank account. If you are not willing to give to the Lord, but you say you love Jesus and you say you love his church, an honest question we have to ask is, well, is my heart there? It, my treasure's not there, so is my heart really there? am I willing to give? And when, I'm, when I am willing to give, what is that saying? Well, it's a physical sacrifice that's communicating a spiritual reality. If I'm willing to physically give of my things, that's communicating to God and to myself that my, tre- my heart really is where my treasure is. I really am walking by faith. I love this quote from Dallas Willard. He says, the discipline of sacrifice is one in which we forsake the security of meeting our needs with what is in our hands. This is what the tithe is all about. It's about forsaking the security of meeting our needs with what's in our control. It's total abandonment to God, a stepping into the darkened abyss in faith and hope that God will bear us up. And as we get ready to close, I wanna invite the band to come up. I wanna squash and just attack really quickly two myths about tithing, because this is a hot take in the church, and you'll hear some of these myths come up. And I wanna just attack these just as honestly as I possibly can. The first myth is this, tithing will make you rich. And this is just simply not the case. One of the reasons why most Christians are really hesitant with this topic is because there have been really terrible pastors that have misled people and they've manipulated people and they've told the body of christ if you give to god he will give you whatever you want he'll give you whatever your heart's desire is so if you tithe he'll make you rich he'll open up the storehouse and you'll have whatever you want now i'm just going to be honest with you i've been tithing for over 12 years of my life now And I'm not rich, like it hasn't worked yet for me yet. But what has happened is I have been taken care of financially, miraculously by a good, good father. Because God's not gonna make you rich when you tithe, but there is a spiritual principle taking place when you tithe. Look at this, Proverbs 3 says, "'Honor the Lord with your wealth, "'and with the first fruits of all of your produce, "'then your barns will be filled with plenty.'" and your vats will be bursting with wine. What is God saying? If you honor me, if you live by faith and give up control of what is really tied to your heart, which is your stuff and your money, if you honor me with those things, you will see my hand over your life. You will see me take care of you. That doesn't mean you're never gonna have struggles again. That doesn't mean you're ever gonna have a bill that you don't wanna pay again or have to work to get that car you want. That's gonna happen but you will see the favor of God on your life. Myth number two is this. It's that tithing is from the law and we don't live under the law anymore. Now, sometimes I hear Christians say this and part of that myth is absolutely true. Absolutely, we don't live under the law anymore. We don't live under the law, we live under the law of grace. But tithing is actually outside of the law. We see tithing show up with Abraham a thousand years before God ever gives and institutes the tithe. So biblically speaking, the tithe is not even tied to the Old Testament, the old covenant law. It's outside of that. But not only that, I hear Christians say this. They're like, man, I don't have to tithe. I don't have to give of my money because I'm under under grace. I can just give when it's convenient. I can give when I want to, and I'm under a new covenant. And to, to my response, I would say, yeah, praise God. We are under a new covenant. But when you look at the early church, who were new covenant Christians, you'll find that they weren't tithing. They were giving way more than the tithe. They were giving all of their stuff. So if you're somebody who's like, man, I don't have to give because I'm a new covenant Christian, my response to you is, oh, praise God. So you're giving like 50%, right? You're a new covenant believer. So you're giving like all of your stuff, right? This is what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. It means to lean in by faith on our father and to see him provide for us. And I wanna end with this. I just wanna be as clear as possible with you. Is tithing a command for you as a believer? Do you have to do it? In short, no, you don't have to tithe. You don't, it's not required for you. It's not a command. You don't do it to get saved but here's where I think we should all land. Tithing is not a command, but it should be our natural response. Tithing should not be something that we see and we say, I don't wanna do that, I'm afraid to do that. Tithing should be a natural response for us as believers. We should say to God, you want 10%? God, I'll give you whatever you ask for for the God who gave me everything, who gave me everything I needed. If you ask for 10%, what little is that for me to give back to you? What I love about this is, I see a different response in a guy named Zacchaeus. See, this rich young ruler, he asked Jesus to just give him the playbook. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He couldn't do it. He couldn't give his stuff, but we see a different response in Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19, I wanna close with this. Zacchaeus has an encounter with Jesus, and we don't know what takes place with this conversation with him and Jesus, but Zacchaeus lives, he leaves a different person. Look at this. It says, he stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. He's walking by faith. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. We see a different response here. I promise you Jesus did not tell Zacchaeus to give that stuff away. That was a response. That wasn't a command from Jesus saying, hey, if you'll follow me, you need to return everything that you've stolen. This was Zacchaeus' response to the forgiveness of Jesus over his life. It was a natural response to the salvation he had encountered. New Song students, my, my cry to you is, man, what's gonna be your natural response to the God who saved you? Are you gonna withhold? Are you gonna withhold and act like you need that to control or are you gonna live by faith and see the hand of God on your life and see him take care of you in ways you cannot even imagine? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?